You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6.30 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. All right, how you doing, Revolution Church? Right on. Yeah, I got to awkwardly just stare at everyone for a while while waiting on the parents to get back. So I'm not used to this. I don't kind of don't know what to do with myself for those few minutes. So I just stand up and make jokes to the people in the first few rows. Uh, but anyway, uh, my name is David Dowdy. I'm the teaching pastor here at Revolution Church. If you're new, um, we're glad to see some new faces here. Glad you're here. Um, if you don't know what we're doing, obviously, if you're new here, you don't. What we're doing is we are going through a series right now. We're going to continue on with it this evening called Bible Stories. Uh, Christ in the Old Testament. And what we're doing is we're seeing how all the Old Testament stories uh, are types and foreshadowings of Jesus. Uh, the New Testament tells us that. Jesus himself tells us that all scripture referring to the Old Testament was really about him and pointed to him. So what we're doing is just looking at those stories and seeing how that's true. Uh, so last week, if you were here, um, I was not here. Um, I was with Nigel Collett. Uh, where's Nigel? Are you up here? Where are you at? I love you. Yeah, Pete. Also, just side note, be in prayer for Nigel. If you, if you don't know, if you weren't here, um, Nigel's family's house burned down last week. Um, so keep him in your prayers. Uh, be encouraged in this brother. Um, he recognizes God's sovereignty in the whole situation and God's grace toward him and his family all through it. Uh, but nevertheless, as a church, we must continue to support months down the road because this is going to be a process for certain. Um, I love you, dude. I'm glad you're here. Um, but anyway, uh, last week, Kelly got to preach. He's way better looking than me. He's cuter than I am. He's just, mm, this good guy. Anyway, I know it's kind of weird, right? It's going to be on the podcast. I said, mmm, that was strange. Uh, anyway, so last week, uh, last week you guys got to take a look at the early life of David, right? You guys looked at David and Goliath and how he killed Goliath, cut his head off and beat him with a rock and all that stuff. It was good times. Uh, and that was a really good time for David, right? It was a super high point in David's life. He, he showed himself to be a mighty warrior of God, that God used him. And, and by God's grace, he, uh, just a marvelous way um, that David got to finish the work that Samson started in driving the Philistines away from the Israelites. Uh, and in David's story, he, he goes on to become king of Israel. Right? And, and not only that, but in 2 Samuel, the first few chapters, uh, I think it's chapter 7, uh, God promises King David that the Messiah, Jesus Christ, was going to come from David's bloodline. Um, so everything is great, right? David's doing super good. He's the best earthly king that Israel ever had. They prospered under King David's rule. But that's not what we're going to talk about this evening. Uh, no way. We are going to be in chapter, or I'm sorry, 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12. If you're a Bible flipper, feel free. Also, if you're new, there are Bibles in the backs of those pews. Take one home with you. Um, but it's going to be up here on the projector. We're going to get to this in a minute. Uh, but in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and chapter 12, things go bad really, really quickly for David. Um, so that being said, tonight we're going to look at the account of David and Bathsheba. How many of you guys have heard of this story? All right, so what I'm talking about. Right, for those of you who haven't, it's not good. Right, in this story, uh, David starts out, David covets another man's wife. Uh, he ends up committing adultery with that woman. He lies and tries to deceive the man of the wife into thinking that it, it, that she's pregnant with his with, the, with that man's kid. It's bad. It's like a Jerry Springer show. It's terrible. Um, and then he goes on. No one, whatever. Um, not funny. And then he goes on and he actually murders this guy. Right. So like things go badly, real, real, real quick in David's life. 
Uh, actually, when I was writing this sermon this past, past week, I started laughing. Um, not about this story, like the story's terrible, but I was, I was laughing because I was thinking, like, I feel like me and Kelly are playing, like, good preacher, bad preacher, right? Like, good cop, bad cop, because three weeks ago, I preached on Samson, right? And I'm like, yeah, dude, Samson was trash. He was not a good guy. And then Kelly's like, yeah, guys, like, David did a really good thing. And I'm like, oh, yeah, because David's trash, too, right? It's like, it's like this good cop, bad cop thing. Um, <laughs> but these chapters, uh, 2 Samuel 11 and 12, these chapters teach us a lot of stuff. Um, and we're not going to be able to cover all of it. There's actually uh, the last verse of this passage, Second uh, Samuel 12:14. We're actually not going to be uh, covering this evening because it raises a lot of questions that we're not going to address this evening. Go home and read it for yourself. Um, so I'm not going to be able to cover everything. But what I hope to point out to you in this passage um, is what it really means to be a believer. So what really distinguishes a believer from an unbeliever? Um, not only that, but the, the foolishness of trying to hide our sins. Thirdly, God's grace in calling us to repentance and exposing us as sinners. And then lastly, I want to look at a little bit of what repentance looks like. And then we're going to see how this all points us to Jesus. Um, so this story starts out horribly. And it has some, some really hard parts to it. But honestly, it's just this huge testimony to the grace of God extended to even the worst of sinners. Right? It's a fantastic example of the grace of God. David, David straight up breaks four of the Ten Commandments in horrendous ways and yet receives mercy from God who is gracious to his people. And that's really the point. Right? So hear me on this. If you're here and you're a believer, we sin daily. Right? But if you're especially aware of some um, particularly grievous sin that you've committed recently, or you're here and you're an unbeliever and you've lived your life the way that you want to live your life and you've not obeyed the gospel, you've not turned to Christ and repented, you've lived for yourself, you've done what you wanted to do all the time, regardless of where you're at, I want you to know this. The point of this story, big picture, is that no one has outsinned the grace of God. You can't. Right? So if nothing else, hear me on this. God has more grace than you have sinned. Right, so just know that God has more grace than we have sin. So that being said, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump into 2 Samuel chapter 11. We're going to read a good bit of text this evening. So let's pray. Father, thank you uh, for the people who are here. Thank you for your word. Your word is truth. God, guide us with your truth. Sanctify us in your truth. Holy Spirit, please prepare the hearts of the people that are here to receive your word. If there are unbelievers here, God, convict them of their sin. Show them their utter hopelessness apart from Jesus, that they might be driven to the Savior and receive forgiveness for sins. And for the believers that are here, God, may we continue to repent and believe the gospel and see that our only righteousness comes from Christ and not our own, not anything that we do, but solely by your grace through faith in the work of Jesus. God, speak through me this evening and do a work of sovereign grace here. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so 2 Samuel, starting in chapter 11, verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, 
the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanliness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. All right, just real quick, David knows who this woman is, right? He sees this woman. Apparently, she's like a fox. Like, the Hebrew wording is, like, really clear. This is, like, just a physical attraction to her. Um, sees her, thinks she's hot. Says, who is she? He probably already knows who she, who she is because she's married to Uriah the Hittite. This is just setting the stage for how bad that this really is out of David. Uriah the Hittite is one of the 30, right? The 30 are these group of like elite soldiers. Think like Navy SEALs of David's time that David intimately knew. They had been out to battle with David personally. These guys are the best of the best in Israel. So he probably already knows who Bathsheba is, right? But they remind him, hey, dude, this chick is married to a good friend of yours, and he's like, yeah, whatever, bring her here anyway. Um, and they probably don't know why he wants to talk to her. This is probably, uh, he could have been masking this with, you know, I just want to see how Uriah's doing, so have her come talk to me. I'm going to give her a private audience, and we're going to see how the family's doing and everything with Uriah being gone at battle. Um, and he ends up sleeping with her. And then just fun fact, verse 5 is one of the scariest verses in the Bible to me. It said, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Um, Come on, that's funny. If you guys know me, I'm scared to death of having kids. Anyway, uh, so verse 6, right? So setting the stage, it's really bad. He knows Uriah. Uriah has fought for him. And he sleeps with his wife and impregnates her. Verse 6, so David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. This is probably a euphemism. Euphemism. Take it easy. Sleep with your wife. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your own house? And Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. So here's the character of Uriah, right? David brings him home. What he's trying to do is, hey, if Uriah goes home and sleeps with Bathsheba, then he's going to think that, that she's pregnant with his own kid, and I'm going to get out of this scot-free, right? Again, horrible, right? So he's trying to deceive Uriah. He's lying to Uriah, and Uriah won't do it. And it really shows us the character of this guy. He says, I'm not going to go and take it easy and, and have sexual relations with my wife while my fellow countrymen are out there in a battle, right? So like he, he's like solidarity with the warriors. And not only that, uh, but where it says like the ark dwells in a, in a booth, it's like a tent. So the Ark of the Covenant's out there. So in all likelihood, this is a holy war because the ark is like a rep representation of God's presence with the people. And, uh, and to, have to have sex is actually a source of ritual impurity, not that it's sin. But Uriah sees himself still on duty as a soldier. So he's saying, you know, I want to keep myself ritually pure. I'm going to show solidarity with my fellow soldiers. I'm not going to go sleep with my wife. Again, Uriah is a stand-up guy. And another fun thing to note, he's not even ethnically Jewish. And so you see the Gentile is actually more of a stand-up guy than the Jewish person in this. So this is horrible. Verse 12. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he, David, made him drunk 
And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. So David tries to liquor him up and send him home to his wife, thinking that oh, he's inebriated, he's going to go have sex with her, and Uriah still won't do it. So he sends a letter with, by Uriah's own hand, his own death warrant, to give to the general of the army, saying, put Uriah on the front line and then make everyone else retreat back that Uriah might be killed by the enemy. This is despicable. 16. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. Skip down to verse 26. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. That's a very ominous ending. So let's see what happens. Second Samuel chapter 12. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. Nathan is a prophet and also a friend of David. The Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come, for him, come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb, and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. So Nathan goes to David, and he tells him a parable, but David doesn't know it's a parable. David thinks that Nathan's bringing him a legitimate legal thing. Hey, I need you to settle this matter. There's a rich guy who had a bunch of livestock, and there's a poor guy who only had one. Visitor came to visit the rich man. The rich man didn't want to kill one of his many animals, so he stole the one animal the poor man had and gave it to his guest. And David is furious, and David pronounces judgment over the man. He doesn't know it's a parable. It's one of the most famous verses in the Bible, verse 7. Nathan said to David, you are the man. You're the rich man. You're the man who's done this. You are the man that you've just pronounced your own judgment over, that you deserve to die. You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, 
And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it in secret, for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. And then David has an epiphany. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. It's a simple statement, but it's one of genuine repentance. And we're going to see how in a little bit. I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Grace. Grace. Though David has just pronounced his own judgment over himself and the man on the parable, that man deserves to die. Nathan tells him, God's more gracious than you are. The Lord has put away your sin and you shall not die. So I just want to get something straight. Uh, before we before we launch into a lot of this, uh, David is a believer, right? He's like one of the titans of the faith in the Old Testament, right? After reading that, like you would, you would, if that's all that you saw from David's life, you would say there is no way that this guy actually follows the living God. But the scriptures declare unequivocally, unequivocally that David is indeed a believer. God Himself says that He is a man after God's own heart. He is the chosen king of Israel, chosen by God himself. David wrote half or more of the Psalms. The largest book in the Bible, David wrote the majority of the Psalms. He is the ancestral father of Jesus Christ. This dude is a believer. And despite that, David falls into some heinous sin. Again, he he, he falls into coveting, adultery, lying, murder. That's actually something that I, I appreciate the, about the Bible. Just side note here. The Bible is raw. Right? The Bible is grimy. It doesn't shy away from hard things. It doesn't try to paint these people that, that do great things by God's grace as perfect saints. And I really appreciate that about the scriptures, that it shows you just the, just the depravity of man, the sinfulness of man. It's grimy. It's good. But the first thing, and I just wanted to clear that up, David is indeed a believer. Hold on to that. But the first thing that I noticed in this story is, is really a warning. If this happened to David, it's got to be a warning to us. If this happened to King David, who has done all these great things for, for the Lord by God's grace, clearly this can happen to us. And I see a warning that we must always be on guard against sin. We must always be on guard against our flesh. And the reason why I say that, and I've been prone to this before, some believers, right, some people have been Christians for a while, they've been following Christ as disciples for a good while, they think that they're stronger than they are, right? Like that they're above committing certain sins, right? Like, you know, like adultery, that's like rookie level sin, right? You've been a Christian for like a year maybe, you might fall into that, or like lust or porn addiction or whatever it is. Like those are rookie sins, you might fall into that if you've not been a Christian for too long, but I've been a Christian for 10 years and I'm not going to fall into that kind of junk. David is our example that that's a really stupid thought. That's a really, really dumb thought to think that you're above committing certain sins. So I just want to lay this out there. No Christian is above committing any sin. If David can kill a guy after sleeping with his wife and then take her as his own, clearly... We're capable of doing anything, are we not? We, we really don't know the own, our own depths of our own depravity. We're completely depraved. And if God just pulls his grace back for just a second, we can fall into this exact same junk that David did. Uh, it reminded me when I was studying for this of a, a metaphor that John Owen wrote. Uh, it's an old Puritan guy in his classic book, The Mortification of Sin. You should pick up a copy of it. It's good. There's an abridged version if you don't like to read 1700s English. Um, 
And John Owen, he uses this metaphor where he says, we must daily stab at our old man. Not your father. But like the, the old man, like your sin nature that's dead, right? You've been, you've, you've been given a new nature in Christ. And what he's really alluding to is this, uh, this passage in Romans 7, right, that talks about we have warring passions within us, that we have the desire to do what is right, we have the desire to obey God and be like Christ, but then we also have the desire to be completely unlike Christ and sin. And he's saying daily we must fight this man. He said you must stab him to death. You must run him through. And even when he lays as if he's dead, you must go and stab him on the ground as he lays there. Because the moment that you turn your back, he may lay dead for days, weeks, months, years. But the day that you cease to stab him, he will raise up and run you through from behind. Because your sin nature is not dead until you are. Until you're in heaven and God seals us in righteousness and gives us a glorified body, we will always struggle against sin. We must kill the old us on a regular basis. I think this is a huge warning of that. It reminds me of 1 Corinthians 10, 12, where Paul says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Or another way of saying it is, Be careful anyone who thinks you stand firm lest you fall. When you think you're nailing it, be careful. When you think that certain sins aren't a problem for you anymore, that you're above something, be very careful because you're on the verge of falling a lot of the time. So I think there's a warning there. Right? But, but what led David to this sin? Right? That's the question that I was asking. How did David get there? Right? How, like, well, how did he get to murder and adultery? Where did this all start? I think that it started with David being complacent, right? being satisfied in his relationship with God. I think that's where it started, that he, that he dropped his guard because he was satisfied with where he was at. He was satisfied with his own holiness at that point in time. And the reason why I say that is the first two verses of chapter 11 um, says that, you know, uh, in the springtime when the kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and, uh, and the people of Israel to fight a war. But David himself stayed back in Jerusalem. And then verse 2 tells us that David, around, like in like the afternoon, gets up off of his couch Right? So he's been taking a nap. Right? He's been taking it easy, and he's just kind of walking around on his roof. And the reason why I, I bring that out is those two verses are juxtaposing what kings do going out to battle and what David is doing. Right? So I think there's something there for us to see, that David is being lazy. <laughs> right? David's not going out there. Um, not only that, but verse 11, Uriah says that the ark was out in, in the battle too, the ark of the covenant. So maybe this was a war sanctioned by God. Maybe this was a holy war. If that's the case, David should have especially been there to lead the people of God into war if this is a war sanctioned by God himself. So I bring that up to, to say that David neglected the, the duties of a godly king. Right? He, he neglected his, his duties towards God. And in doing that, he gave an opportunity for sin. Right? I know I'm talking to believers right now, um, but, but hear me on this. In, in the same way, when we neglect our duties to God, which I know we don't like the word duties uh, because, like, we're in the new covenant of grace, right, where we're saved by the work of Christ and not our own work. But nevertheless, we do have duties towards God. Uh, it's a Puritan expression, right? It means, like, the, the, the things that in, in one way or another we're obligated to do, right, we're, like to pray, to seek God out in the scriptures, to do good works, to tell people the gospel, um, to, to run hard after holiness, to kill sin, right, to pursue God. These are our duties towards God. It's just the Christian life. But whenever we neglect our duties towards God, we give an occasion to sin. 
And what I mean by that is it's harder, not impossible, right? So I'm not making this like a rock-solid thing. But it's harder to fall into sin when we're striving for holiness and obedience and closeness with God. It's just harder. It's not impossible, but it's harder. If your life is one immersed in prayer, that your days are saturated with prayer, your days are saturated with Scripture, constantly seeking to do good to others in the name of Christ, your weeks are saturated in accountability and relationship with other believers, your weeks are saturated in the the genuine worship of God, coming together corporately to worship Him, telling people the gospel. Where's your time, I suppose, to fall into sin? Right, you guys have heard the expression "idle hands are the devil's plaything." No, am I eighty? Okay, whatever. Um, <laughs> but idle hands are the devil's plaything. I think that there's some truth in this story for that. Right, Satan loves laziness it, because it gives him an opportunity to tempt more so. Right, I heard Matt Chandler one time. I love that preacher. He said, he "said There's nothing more dangerous than a bored man. He's capable of doing anything because he's not pursuing the Lord." And pursuing God is the least boring thing that you can possibly do. Right? So I think that there's a lot of truth in that. Satan loves laziness because it gives him more of an opportunity. Not only that, but Paul, I believe in Ephesians, tells us to redeem the time. Because the time we live in is evil. So buy back the time. Pursue the Lord. So as we neglect the things of God, as we neglect our, the spiritual disciplines, you can call them, we naturally grow colder towards God. And in doing so, we weaken our faith. God never weakens our faith, but we do. So in this warning, before we go any further, I just want to say don't be complacent. Don't be satisfied with where you're at spiritually because God is worth your greatest efforts. If he is the highest joy in all of the universe, like the Bible says that he is, then he is the greatest pursuit that we could possibly have. So we're foolish if we're satisfied with where we're at with him. Right? So just wanted to lay that out there. So I see a warning. But not only that, this, like, this fantastic failing, right? Like, this is, like, crazy. This spectacular sin of David also stands in opposition to a legalistic, judgmental understanding of what it means to be a believer. Like I said, David is indeed a believer. Right? I think we've all got some, like, a little bit of Pharisee in us, right, where we like to judge other people. And, and Whenever I say judge, by the way, I need to define this. I actually put it in my notes so I didn't forget this. Because we live in a culture that if you tell anyone that they're doing something wrong, Jesus says don't judge me. No, Jesus says judge according to, like judge with right judgment. right? And don't judge someone according to a standard you yourself aren't willing to judge yourself by. But he doesn't tell us not to judge. right? So let's just get that out of the way. So judgment, or being judgmental, is not holding people to the standard of Scripture. right? It's not judgmental to humbly point out sin and show someone their need for repentance. If that's judging people, then that's literally all Jesus Christ did. Like, <laughs> just throwing that out there to you guys. Um, by, by judgmental, I mean declaring someone to be an unbeliever because they've fallen into a certain sin. That's what I mean by this story, really smacks a judgmental view of what it means to be a Christian. Declaring someone's an unbeliever because they've fallen into a certain sin. Some people, and I've actually gotten into some fights in my family over this, uh, some people say Christians can't do X, right? Whatever the X. Christians can't commit adultery. Christians can't struggle with homosexuality. Christians can't whatever. That's wrong, totally wrong. Um, Christians shouldn't do that, right? I'm not saying you guys can go out and do this stuff, right? I'm not saying just have at the sin. I'm not saying that. To say that a Christian can't do something is completely false, but to say Christians shouldn't do something is a completely different story. 
right? So, like, people often will hear of a really bad sin, right, that Christians commit, like, and especially, like, uh, external sin that's easy to see, right, whatever it is, but it's something that's easy to see or something socially that's, that's viewed worse than other sins. But people hear of a really bad sin that a believer has committed, and they immediately want to drop the gavel on that person and say, they're not a Christian. There's no way that they're a Christian and they committed that sin. We've all met people like this. I've been that person, if we're going to be completely honest. You see someone fall into a sin, you say there's no way that they're really a Christian. And if that's you, if that's your heart sometimes, that really reveals a misunderstanding of the gospel of grace. Period. The gospel is the good news that we are justified, we are legally declared righteous by God, by His grace, unmerited favor towards us, through faith, trusting in the work of someone else. We're saved because of the work of another. An alien righteousness is what the, was what the reformers called it. We're saved by the work of Jesus, not our own. He was perfect in our place. He suffered the death and wrath that you and I deserve for our sin. We're saved by what he did, not what we do. And if we're willing to slam the gavel down on someone that's a believer because they fell into a certain sin, we show that we don't understand that we are saved by someone else's obedience. Because in that moment you're saying that person's a believer or an unbeliever based off of how well they obey. It's a complete misunderstanding of the gospel. David was declared righteous by God the same way that everyone else in the world has ever been declared righteous by God, and that's because he trusted that God would one day send a Savior to redeem him. David looked forward to a Messiah. It was not because of David's obedience to God that he was declared righteous. All right, now I've got to give some, uh, some qualifications to this. I am not teaching an easy believism, right, where you assent to some truths about Jesus coming back from the dead and dying for sin, and that makes you a Christian. That's not what I'm teaching here. I'm also not teaching salvation apart from repentance and heart change. Hebrews tells us, strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So I'm not saying you can live how you want and still be a believer. I'm not saying that at all. Matter of fact, 1 John 1, 6 would tell us that if you live in unrepentant sin, you're not a Christian. What was the key word in that sentence? Unrepentant sin. And this is a beautiful truth. So like I said, I want to talk about what it means to really be a believer versus being an unbeliever. The major difference between a believer and unbeliever is repentance. (laughs) This is a great truth to hold on to. Like, believers and unbelievers can commit the same sins, can commit awful, grievous sins, But believers repent and believe the gospel on a daily basis. Believers turn from their sin, agree with God that they were wrong, strive to kill the sin, and trust Christ's righteousness to save them. The unbeliever refuses to do so. That's the difference. That's really the difference between a believer and an unbeliever. And chapter 12 tells us that David repented. I have sinned against the Lord. He owns it. So in spite of his horrible sin, we can confidently, confidently declare that David was a believer. So there's huge hope for us here. This is one thing that sets our God apart from every other God, or every other, other so-called God, is that our God justifies the ungodly. Our God justifies the wicked. 
beautiful truth here. But really, chapter 11 is, is just one big story of, of David trying to cover up his sin. Like, instead of owning his sins, all the things that he's done, and seeking mercy from God, he just keeps trying to cover them up and keeps, keeps trying to cover them up. He tries to get Uriah drunk to go sleep with his wife. He, he ends up killing Uriah so that no one finds out that he committed adultery with Bathsheba and so on. And he marries her so that no one knows that she got pregnant out of wedlock, right? So he's just always trying to cover his sin. Which brings up the, the topic of secret sins. And I hope that this isn't a problem for anybody. But I'm also not stupid. Right, when I say secret sins, I mean things that you've done in the darkness that you want to keep in the darkness. <laughs> I think everyone has something. Hopefully nothing, but I think everyone, at least in the past, has had this kind of a thing. Sins that you're constantly trying to hide and you never want to own up to them. You never truly want to repent. You never want to truly have to confess them to someone else. You don't, definitely don't want to confess them to God. These could be lies that you've told, sexual sin in your life, lust, hatred, an addiction, envy, not being content with what God's given you. It can, it can be anything. It's anything that you don't want to repent of. It's anything that you don't want to publicly confess. It's anything that you don't want to own before God. And you've been hiding it for a long time. You don't want to come clean with it. Maybe you don't want to face this sin and deal with it because of the consequences. If David would have owned it to Uriah and said, I got your wife pregnant, there would have been serious consequences in Israel for this. David could have possibly been stoned because he broke the law. Maybe you don't want to face the consequences of your sin, so you don't want to own it. Or maybe you fear what people might say or think about you if you come clean with these sins and own them. Or maybe, this is the worst, maybe you don't really see a need to bring these sins to light and repent and seek help. And I'll be honest with you, if that's you and you really don't see a need to repent and turn from this sin, that you think you can just keep hiding it and keep on in it, that probably reveals an unregenerate heart. That probably reveals a heart that has not been brought to life by the Holy Spirit. You're probably not a believer if that's you. You don't see a need to repent again. 1 John 1.6 tells us this clearly. If we walk in darkness and claim to have fellowship with God, we are liars. But regardless of the reason, the true problem with trying to cover up and hide our sin is that we won't come clean with God for what we've done. 1 John 9 says this, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is a conditional statement, as beautiful as it is, if we confess our sins. Without confession of sins, if we don't own our sins, we can't be forgiven. If we don't own our sins to God. Confession to God is crucial in repentance. And not only that, but James 5 tells us that confession to others for accountability and prayer is also incredibly important and often overlooked. But we have to own our sin. We have to confess. I was thinking about this. What really makes secret sins so heartbreaking is that they deny the gospel. Let's think about this for a second. In having a secret sin, you're believing that either God can't forgive you or that he won't forgive you, or that you have to wear a mask and act like you're nailing it as a Christian. 
that you don't struggle with these sins, that you're not committing these sins. And what's heartbreaking about that is that really denies the power of God to forgive. Because if you think that he can't forgive you, it denies his power to save. If you think he won't forgive you, it denies his merciful character that we see on every page of the Bible. And if you think you have to wear a mask and act like you're nailing it, you're really denying your own need for a savior. That's a prerequisite, by the way, for being a Christian, is to own the fact that you are garbage and that you need someone to rescue you. So one of the most freeing aspects of the gospel is that we don't have to hide our sin. This is awesome. Like, the secret is out, ladies and gentlemen, right? Like, the secret's out. We suck. We need a savior. Right? The cross, think about this, the cross in all of its ugliness, in all of its blood, in all of its pain and suffering, that really shows us how bad we are because that is what it took to save human beings from their sin. We can come clean. The cross declares what we really are. The cross declares the wrath that we deserve. We can own our sin and run to Christ. But David covered it up. And he hid it from the people around him. And he, you know, he got away with it as far as chapter 11 was concerned. But verse 27 of chapter 11 tells us something very important. God was displeased. God saw it. God saw what David did. Right? Which really shows us how stupid we are to try to hide our sin. <laughs> We're going to be honest. Right? Like, secrets don't exist. <laughs> Right? Nothing is a secret. God sees and he promises to judge us. He sees and he judges. That's one of the clearest concepts in the scriptures for his seeing. Psalm 139, one of the most famous psalms in the Bible, verse 7. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. That's the realm of the dead. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hands shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall overcome me, or shall, co shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for the darkness is as light with you. I know it sounds like I'm talking to like kids here, like God sees everything, but like we forget that. God has seen the sin. It's stupid for us to try to hide it and not own it before him. But God was patient with David, as he is with us. But not patient for no reason. God's patient with us that we might turn to him in repentance. Chapter 12 shows us God's grace towards David in spite of his sin. God sends Nathan, right? David's friend, a prophet. And Nathan calls out David with a parable and shows David his sin. Proverbs 27.6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, and profuse are the kisses of an enemy. It's a good friend that will call you out on your sin and call you to repentance. I just wanted to point this out quickly. We tend to really undervalue accountability, and we need friends willing to be a Nathan. That's why the church is such a grace of God to push us towards Christ and call us back to repentance. So be in community with other believers. This is a grace from God towards you. But nevertheless, God exposes David, and he brought the sin to the surface and he used Nathan to do it so David would repent. This is grace from God. That God would expose David for the sinner that he is. And God does the exact same for us today. Maybe in ways that don't seem so miraculous, right? Like I've never had like my best man's name was David. So like chapter 12, or name was Nathan. Made me laugh a little bit when I was reading this. 
Um, I've never had my best friend come to me and tell me a parable that brought me to repentance. That would be incredible. Um, but God still calls us to repentance, but maybe in ways that don't seem miraculous. Right? This sermon, right? Just think about that for a minute. This sermon, scripture, conversations, regardless, whatever it is, no matter how ordinary it seems, God is at work using ordinary means. That's usually what God does, is he uses things that we take for granted to work in our lives. But it's kindness, really, from God that he would expose the sins of his people. It's kindness from him, because as he does that, we begin to run to Christ for forgiveness. That's God's goal in exposing our sin. This is a weird thing to think about. It would be judgment from God to leave us where we are and let us continue on in our sins. It's grace that someone would come and expose us. It's grace that God would call us out. But God, praise be to him, does not leave us there. He calls us out of sin and he calls us to himself. Right? So hear me on this. If you're a believer and you've been screwing up lately, this is a huge comfort for us. Because David stands as evidence that God does not give up on his people. He will not leave his elect in their sins. Chapter 12 screams to us that God pursues sinners. Jesus himself calls himself the good shepherd. Jesus goes wandering, goes after the wandering sheep and the good shepherd does not lose sheep. God will bring us to repentance one way or another if we do belong to him. That's beautiful for us to know. But by grace, God causes David to see the depth of, depths of his sin, and he grants him repentance. And David actually goes on to pen the 51st, 51st Psalm, which is a psalm of repentance. So I just want us to look at a few of these verses, and I think it's going to teach us what true repentance looks like. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. It's a plea for mercy. That's how this whole psalm starts out. David's saying, take my sin and make me clean. Why? Not based on my worth or anything that I've done, but based on your merciful character. Make me clean and remove my sin from me. Verse 3, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. He, pleads for, he, he asks for mercy and then he owns his sin. In those two verses, he's basically saying, you would be justified to damn me for my sins. The blame is on me. I have sinned against you primarily before I've sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah. I have sinned against God. The sin is mine. My mouth is stopped. Your judgment is just. I have nothing to say in my defense. You're justified in damning me, but I'm asking you for mercy. Verse 10, he says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. He's seeking a restored relationship with God. And this is so, so important. I feel like I've, I've failed in, in, in teaching this to you guys. David, it's not just a fear of punishment from God. It's not just a fear of punishment that's causing him to repent. In those two verses we just read, he's saying, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. I want to know you. I want to be close to you. I don't just fear the punishment, but I want a restored relationship with you. 
I'm not just sorry for, because of the punishment coming at me. I'm sorry because I have offended you. I've marred this relationship with my sin. And I want you. I'm not just afraid of the punishment. He wants a closeness with the Lord. And the psalm, verse 13, goes to show us the fruit of repentance. So he's saying, God, if you will forgive me, then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. The fruit of repentance is praising God for His grace, where we worship with a devotedness to this God. And secondly, it's pointing sinners to this God of grace. He says, people will be saved as I point them to you because of the grace that you've shown me. This is a life change where the forgiven person's life goal is now to declare the mercies of God to unbelievers around them, to believers who have fallen into sin, to point them to the God of all grace. And really, I think this psalm points us straight to Jesus because Jesus answers every plea and request in this psalm with yes. Just blot out my transgressions. Take my sin from me. Make me clean. And God blots out our transgressions in Christ by taking the record of our sins and nailing them to the cross with Christ. Peter says Christ bore our sins in his body on the tree. As a substitute in our place, Christ removes sin from us. David says you'd be justified in damning me. And though God is justified in pouring our wrath out on us, Jesus willingly offered himself and satisfied that wrath. And by faith we are united to Christ and that nearness that David pleaded for. Restore what's broken. Jesus brings us near to God and reconciles us to the Father by his own righteousness. Everything in this psalm is answered in Christ. Not only this, but the whole story points us to Jesus. Because David shows us a need for a better king. David fails as king. He falls into sin and then kills his own people to cover his sin. And Jesus, on the other hand, is the true king who dies himself to remove the sins of his people. Christ is the true king. So rather than attempting to hide our sin like the king who failed, we must run to the king who takes them away. Jesus is truly the greater David. So this story isn't a mere morality tale about adultery and lust. Right? That's how it was taught to me growing up. It's really an account of man's sin and God's conquering grace, which is the story of the Bible. Man sins and God restores what's broken. So remember David's life and see his sin and stay on guard against your flesh and pursue God daily. Never settle for where you are spiritually because the moment you do, you give an occasion for sin. But when you fail, and you will, will fail, hopefully not as badly as David, but when you do sin, remember the grace of God given to David. The grace of God is our only hope. Remember that God promises to take away the sins of all who come to him by faith in Christ. Never forget that whether you're killing it in obedience or right after you've sinned, that we are saved by the work of Christ and that God counts us righteous by what he has done, not by what we do. And thank God for that because if it was 90, 99% Christ and 1% us, we're going to hell because we will screw up the 1%. 
But thanks be to God, it's all on Christ. So may we, as we reflect on the mercies of God given to us in Christ, seek to bear the fruit of genuine repentance. May we leave here with a desire to respond in obedience with a thankful heart, singing like David the praises of our gracious God, all the while pointing others to the God of our salvation, the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being a gracious God. For being a God who knows how jacked up that we are, who sent Christ in spite of our own wickedness in order to save us. Thank you for answering all of our pleas for mercy and forgiveness with yes in Jesus. God, help us to stay on guard against sin, but to know that even if we were to completely obey you perfectly, that we would still need the righteousness of Christ because of our past failures. God, never let us become legalistic. Never let us become judgmental towards people who fall into sin, but let us graciously and humbly go to them and call them to repentance in the name of your Son. God, let us see your grace. Draw an unbeliever to you this evening. Draw a believer back to repentance. Do a sovereign work of grace. God, you are holy and you are good. And you're merciful beyond measure. In Jesus' name, amen.